Let's pray together as we head into this passage this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is powerful, that it is life-giving. Lord, that it's also uh, challenging and convicting. And we ask this morning that you would open our hearts to receive. And uh, Lord, that you would use my words to speak your words to your people by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Uh, if you're just joining us, or if you're visiting or new this morning, we are walking through the book of Amos over uh, some of these weeks here in the fall. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we started talking about Amos, how he was a shepherd, an unknown sort of shepherd, a fig tree farmer from the southern kingdom of Judah. And he's called by God to go and prophesy against Israel, which is the northern kingdom. And last week, Pastor Brian described some of the key sins that Israel was dealing with, the things that God had against Israel that needed to be addressed. There was three things in particular that were pointed out last time, that there was mistreatment or injustice of the poor, that God loves the poor and he has a good plan in his word for how to structure societies in such a way that the poor are uh, dealt with in love and in grace. And Israel had forsaken that. The second thing was sort of rampant sexual immorality, and God had issue with that as well. And the third thing was a sense of corrupt worship, that Israel had neglected Yahweh and had begun to worship other gods. And so God tells Israel, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, I raised you up, but now you've turned against me. And if you look just before chapter 3, where we were in chapter 2, uh, in verse 13, God says, just as he said, I've brought you up out of Egypt. Look at verse 13, chapter 2. He says, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Sort of this sense of, you know, when a cart is driving along and it presses into the ground and you get sort of ruts in the ground from the weight of the cart. Um, notice this particularly when I look at driveways and particularly in our front driveway in Earl. There's just a spot that just sort of sinks down. It's because the van's always parked in that same spot. And it, everything sort of runs to this one spot. It's just pressed down. And God says, I need to press you down um, as, a, as a justice, as a right discipline because of your sin against me. And he goes on at the end of chapter 2 to say, the strong don't have strength to flee. The swift can't run away from me. Uh, the brave will lose courage. No one can escape the punishment. You can't run away from it. You can't stand against it. The only healthy response is true repentance. It's to acknowledge uh, Israel's sin. That's their only hope to escape destruction. And, and Brian uh, led us through uh, that time of repentance and sort of reflecting on that last week. This is a, a pretty difficult word for Israel, as you can imagine. But it tells us something really important, and it's a theme that we end up returning again over and over uh, when we're looking at the book of Amos. And the theme is this. God takes your sin seriously. Now, that's not a, a, a very fun topic to get into, is it? But God exposes Israel's injustices and Israel's evils. And he did that back in the day, and he does that still in our day, both sort of corporately, but also individually. He uh, confronts us with our sin. And just as Israel's best response was to acknowledge their sin, and to walk in repentance and, and to respond to God uh, and, and receive God's grace in the same way God calls us 
into repentance and into life and into love to lay ourselves before him. Because in all honesty, the sins that Israel struggles with here are, are sins that we still struggle with, aren't they? We still can struggle with how to treat the poor well. We still can struggle with sexual immorality. We can still struggle with false worship. All of those things, all three of those, are about finding self-gratification in the objectification of someone else. All of those are about seeking myself uh, at the detriment of others. What others can do for me, whether it's influence or power or pleasure or beating others down. And we can do that publicly and we can also do that privately. And so as we read Amos, it, there is encouragement for us because of Jesus we know we can receive God's forgiveness. We can respond with repentance and receive his grace and walk in holiness. But there is sort of a soberness to this where we read passages like this and just say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. And so I thank Velma for reading uh, this passage this morning. Chapter 3, would you turn with me there and just look again? The passage begins by describing the people who need to hear the word of God. We're going to talk this morning about people who need to hear God's word and then the power of God's word and then uh, sort of the false reactions to God's word. But first we hear about the people who need to hear God's word. Uh, these are Israel, of course. And look at, again at verses 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. And then verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You think, well, that's kind of a weird thing to say. Well, I know you, therefore I will punish you. Well, the sense is, I know you, and you should know better. And because you know, I need to respond with right discipline. And uh, any of you who have children will have lived this out to some degree. right? Because I know you, and because I love you, and because I've tried to tell you the way in which you are to go, when you don't respond well to that, when you disrespect me, when you break the rules, when you hurt someone else, then there's consequences for your actions. And you might know that in small scale in your family unit, uh, but think of that in sort of large scale as a nation where the, the consequences are that much worse and the injustices are that much worse. Uh, this word in verse 2, you only have I known, that's a word of tenderness. Uh, to know someone is, is a sense of intimacy and love. God says, I know you, I love you, therefore I must respond I can't just sit by and let your sin sort of sit there. I have to respond to this because I love you. Uh, and his word is meant to take root in their hearts. They're meant to respond to this. Um, they have a privilege, right? God has brought them out of Egypt, and now he needs to punish them for their iniquities. The people of God have a special revelation of God. There's a special responsibility to live for him, and therefore there's a special uniqueness uh, to live for him, to respond to him. And so whether it's the Old Testament people of God, like we read here in Amos, or the New Testament people of God, the church, all of us who are part of the visible church of God need to hear and respond to God's word. Even if that's a word about guilt and punishment as we read this morning. Sometimes, folks, the word of God to us is a word of God against us. It's a word that sort of pierces to our hearts and makes us reflect on who we are and what we're doing. And you might think, well, that's just Old Testament with sort of those stuffy old angry prophets going around and being mean to people. 
But you know what? Jesus does the same thing in Revelation. Jesus speaks to the seven churches in Revelation as a word against his people. And five of those seven churches are on the verge of being de-churched, in a sense, because they've fallen out of love of God and they've pursued something else. So this is not just sort of an Old Testament stodgy sort of God being mean. This is God's love for us because he wants to see us move away from sin and into life. And again, any of you that have children or have been responsible for children know that there's times where discipline is necessary because you love your kids. It, that the way in which they're going is unhealthy or actually dangerous and you need to respond. Imagine that's God's heart for us. So Amos 3 starts with sort of highlighting this relationship between Israel and God. And because of their sin, and because of his love for them, God needs to speak fairly frankly about this. So that's verses 1 and 2. And then the next section, verses 3 to 8, show examples of the power of God's word. And there are seven examples here about actions that have specific outcomes, sort of the cause and effect relationship that you see in the world. That's just sort of part of reality, right? If someone's pushed over, they fall. They don't float, right? There's cause and effect. There's determinable things that will happen. This uh, sort of came, came to bear for me on Friday night as I was putting Will to bed. I told Will, who's four, that I had submarine Lego downstairs and Robin Hood Lego to boot. Not just submarine Lego, but also Robin Hood Lego. Um, and he must have went to sleep with that word in his heart, so to speak, because let me tell you what the first words out of Will's mouth were Saturday morning as he called from the hallway. We're not, good morning, Dad, or Dad, get me out of this room, or Dad, help me change. It was, Dad, where is the submarine? Dad, where is the Robin Hood? And what does it look like? And what color is it? Uh, that he had that kind of right in him, the spoken word had taken root. There was a direct effect uh, from the consequences of me sharing late at night the sort of Lego I might have had for him. And that's what this passage is about. Do two walk together? unless they've agreed to meet, unless they've planned to do so. If I tell Will that there's submarine Lego, will he tell me about it on Saturday morning? Yes, yes, he will. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No, he roars because he has prey, and God has been roaring through the book of Amos. He's on the hunt. I think this, this one in verse 5 is particularly sort of poignant. Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? The idea is, no, someone sprung the trap right? You think of a bear trap sort of set lurching in the, in the underbrush and it sort of reaches up and snares someone's leg, right? That's the picture here. It's sort of the picture of God's word has sprung up and it snared Israel in her sins. They're trapped in their sin and now they're trapped in God's word and they have to hear the consequences of God's word. And the passage goes on in verse 7 and 8. It says, God does nothing without revealing his secrets the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? This sense that when God says it's time for something to happen, the prophets must speak. They cannot keep silent. The lion has roared. And there's a sense here also, who will not fear in verse 8? sense of fear of, the, of God. It's worth asking, do you have a healthy fear of God this morning? Now, there's two ways you can fear God. There's a fear of God where you run from him. This is Adam in his sin, right? Adam and Eve, when they hear God's voice, uh, they hear him coming, they run and hide because uh, they're fearful. That's a fear that's bound up in sin. It's a fear that drives us from God. 
There's also a fear that drives us to God. And it's the fear of God that comes when we've received the pardon and the salvation of Jesus at the cross. It's a fear that drives us to Christ. It's a fear that drives us back to the cross, realizing this is the only place where my sins are forgiven. It's the only place that I can be washed clean. It's the only place where I can find life and hope and freedom. I want to say this morning, don't run from God. Run to God. Run to God. Seek Him and live. And so verses 1 and 2, again, tell us about the need to hear the Word of God. It's His people, His church here, need to hear the Word of God. And verses 3 to 8 tell us that that Word comes as a direct result of something, the cause and effect relationship that God is speaking like a roaring lion. This is like God's word coming up like a trap upon Israel. And then look at verses 9 and 10. It actually talks about Ashdod and Egypt. Those are idolatrous nations. Of course, Egypt's the nation that Israel's saved out of. And yet what's happening here is God is saying, they'll judge you for their sins, for your sins. There's a sense in which Israel's become worse than Egypt. And Egypt can look at Israel and go, you should know better. They ought to know that their hope is in God alone, and yet they're turning from him. They've made an idol of something else in their, lives, in their life. And again, I just go, man, we, we can still struggle with this, can't we? I can still make something else an idol in my life. And then the final section of the passage that I want to focus on, verses 13 to 15, talks about the places we go to make other idols in our lives. Look again at verses 13, 14. I'll just read it here. It says, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altars shall be cut off and fall to the ground. You think that's really weird. <laughs> that's really weird language. What's going on there? Well, Bethel, uh, if you think back to Genesis, Bethel is the place where Jacob uh, encounters God, has a vision of God. Uh, but it was also years later the same place where Israel's evil king, Jeroboam, set up one of his golden calves. So Jeroboam set up, made two golden calves. Uh, and of course, you think back to the Exodus story. Golden calves are probably not good. Makes two golden calves and actually sets one up at Bethel. Um, and sets another one up elsewhere. And so Bethel had become sort of known as a place where worship to God had been corrupted where true religion had been corrupted. In fact, in Hosea, uh, Hosea 10, uh, he calls the place Beth-Avon, which means house of iniquity, instead of Bethel, which means house of God. Uh, it's this place, you can think of it as this place where man-made religion and man-made spirituality has come. And God will not abide that. God's not interested in sort of half measures of being spiritual or half measures of sort of the latest sort of new age fad. God's not interested in that. And verse 14 says, the horns of the altar will be cut off. Well, the horns on the altar, the altar's uh, sort of a square uh, piece of sort of temple furniture, and there was sort of four, at each corner was sort of a little vertical protrusion that you'd call the horn of the altar. And there was a sense, you can read this in Exodus 27, um, that they had sort of ritual significance, that if you sort of clung to the, the horn of the altar, There'd be some sense of God's protection available there for you. You could hold on to the horn. You could say, and God says, no, not now. The horns will be cut off and fall to the ground. The horns of Bethel's false altar will bring no protection whatsoever. 
And that's a prophetic word of God against man-made religion. And then in verse 15, it talks about God striking the winter houses and the summer houses. And these are pictures of, of man-made prosperity, that there'll be no hope there as well. And so the places where people tend to go in their idolatry, whether it's to man-made spirituality or to man-made prosperity, God says those sorts of places where you offer false worship, they will not be a place to rescue you when God comes uh, to bring the consequences of your sin. You won't, you won't find protection in your false spirituality or your sense of false prosperity in your work or your career or whatever it might be. And that might sound really foreign to us, but you know what it's like? It's like coming to church but in the wrong way. It's like coming to church without any sense of repentance at all. Of sort of just, I just waltz in to have a good time, sort of this social gathering and forgetting that we come here to worship a holy God. It's thinking, well, uh, maybe just coming to church is enough, that I don't really need to give my life to God. I don't actually need to surrender. I don't need to bow the knee to him. I just sort of show up once a week, and that makes me good enough, and God says, no, stop it. I heard the story this week of a very successful Christian denomination several years ago, and it was one of the fastest growing denominations in North America. And, you know, things were going great. There was congregations getting started, and things were growing, and the youth group was thriving, and the worship was whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the worship was, but things were going well. And, uh, you know, it was exciting to be part of. And then the movement plateaued, and the growth seemed to stop, and the, the sense of vitality in worship seemed to stop, and the the sense of things happening seemed to stop and began to falter. And the congregation began to compromise on the truth of the gospel. They began to take in other things, Jesus plus this or Jesus plus that, to include. And they let other ideologies of sin into the church and the denomination started to fade. And so the leaders put together this strategic plan Right? The board got together and did a survey, and they had several congregational meetings about what should they do, and they put together a plan to try to make things right and to figure out how do we attract people, and how do we grow ministries, and how do we do more stuff so we can look successful. And at a conference, those church leaders presented their plan to all the other pastors and ministry leaders and whatnot. Here's all the stuff we're going to do so that we can be like we were when things were better. And one pastor got up and he said, you know, I don't believe that God has lost his power. Has God lost his power in all of this? No. Has the word of God lost its power? No. Well, could it be perhaps then that we're losing because we've lost our favor with God? Could it be that we've chosen to walk apart from him? And this sense of faltering as a denomination is the result of our own sins. I don't know what happened. My sense is that pastor was right on the money. Our only true defense from God is God himself. In the face of God's good justice, of his holiness, we can only turn to him in repentance and love and faith. And so I get to the end of this passage in Amos 3, and I understand it's a difficult one for us. 
but I'm, I'm prompted with these questions. If Jesus were to speak to you this morning, what word would he speak to you? And if he were to speak against us as a church this morning, what would he speak? What are the gaps in what we say we believe and how we actually behave? And if you're like me, there's all sorts of gaps in my life that need to get dealt with. But God doesn't stand by and watch his own people get consumed with our own sort of fleshly desires and do nothing. He calls us back to himself. To turn to him in repentance and faith. And so I want to ask this morning, is there, is there anything that you are dealing with? Is there sin in your life, but you are hungering and thirsting and yearning for God to come and to cleanse you? And you are praying and you are fighting and you're battling against that. You know, Jesus... Jesus went to the cross so that he could become the object of all of God's judgment. That the judgment you and I deserve that would be poured out on us instead was poured out upon him. That's why we can, we can read and pray and sing that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so our answer to the questions of Amos 3 is to look to the cross and say, Lord, it's because of you alone that we can turn in repentance and find true forgiveness and salvation. And so this morning, I want to encourage you, let's come to God and let's bring our brokenness and our, our sin and our hard hearts to him, or perhaps our, our lustful and our envious hearts, whatever the case might be, and just say, Lord, I need you to fix me from within. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to wash me clean. And as we come to this table this morning, let's come as repentant sinners, as sinners who are saved by God's grace, with our hearts longing to be cleansed. And we can come not, not just with a sense of soberness, because I think really at the heart of this message is deep joy, as we can come to the cross with joy, knowing that Jesus has gone in our place, and that through him, our sins are truly washed away forever. And when we come to this table, it's a way of saying again, receiving again, the reality that God has welcomed us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for you and for me. So let's pray to that end. And as we come to celebrate this table and as we celebrate Thanksgiving, let's celebrate and be thankful for the greatest gift of all for Jesus and his love for us. Lord, this morning we thank you for the power of your word. Lord, we thank you that you uh, came to give us life. Lord, that you don't shy away from confronting us in our sins, even though, Lord, often we shy away from dealing with our sins well. And Jesus, I thank you that because of the cross we can know true forgiveness and salvation. Jesus, I pray this morning that as we come to this table, um, like someone being invited over for Thanksgiving dinner, there's a place of hospitality and community and love and laughter around the table. Lord, as we come to this table this morning, uh, we come knowing our sinfulness, but Lord, we come with joy because you've saved us. And for each one who comes, there's a sense of knowing that we are welcomed at your table 
And there will come a day where we are welcomed again when you come in glory to that great feast. Lord, I thank you for my friends here today, and I pray that as we worship you through this meal that you've given us, uh, that you would be honored, that you would speak to us. Lord, that you would cleanse us of our sins. Lord, we want to be people who are quick to repent and quick to forgive. Would you do that in our hearts as we come to this meal today? In your name, amen.